So I'm speaking with composer Daniel Pemberton, who uh, I personally discovered playing a little game called The Movies, uh, where Daniel had to channel some of the most iconic composers in their genres. Beyond that, Daniel has done an immense number of films and shows that have established his bold and versatile voice as a composer, uh, from the collaborations with uh, director Nick Murphy, with his films like The Awakening and Blood, to hilarious comedies like Cuban Fury. And of course, working with top film auteurs such as Ridley Scott on The Counselor, and now with Guy Ritchie on the big screen adapt adaptation of The Man from Uncle. Daniel, thanks so much for uh, chatting today. My pleasure. So, we've done the interview before, so any listeners right now, if you want to go back and listen to Daniel talk about his path to composing, but for now we're just going to jump right into Man from Uncle. Firstly, I have to say, uh, the score is really awesome. I, I mean, I loved it. It's so much fun and so bold and so stylish. I love it so much. So, um, how did you get involved with Guy Ritchie and, and on this project? Um, well, I'd had uh, some, like, renewed interest uh, in in what I was doing, I guess, because of working with Ridley right. on the Counselor and, and then uh, the Vatican, which is another project I did with him. And uh, so I'd had a meeting with Warner Brothers, and they were just talking about, um, you know, upcoming projects, and one of them was the Man's Munkle, which I thought sounded really cool. They said, put a showreel together, put a showreel together, which I didn't actually think was that good. <laughs> it was kind of like this kind of weird mishmash of like some of the TV stuff I'd done. Um, and it was kind of one of those things where, I don't know, if you ever send showreels in, you're always a bit like, it's not like what you want, but I can do what you want, don't worry, this is just <laughs> other stuff. Right. Um, and after saying that, I was kind of like, oh, that wasn't a very good showreel, I didn't think. And then sort of forgot about it and... And then he's got a phone call saying, Guy wants to meet you and have a meeting with Guy. And basically, Guy was like, I listened to every show we on Hollywood and they all sounded the same. And he was the only one that sounded different. So that's why you were here. Wow. Um, and uh, then I got the job, which was quite weird. And then I spent a very, very long time working on it. <laughs> well, I mean, the result is... Fantastic. And I mean, the, the film itself, you know, it's based on the iconic, iconic TV series from the 60s. And, you know, looking at that era, you know, I know the film takes place in that era, you know, but looking back from, you know, Mission Impossible, the TV series, and that's when, you know, uh, James Bond kind of uh, premiered um, with Dr. No. And, and even, it's not a spy film, but, you know, Pink Panther was there too in 63, kind of all these shows and films kind of establish this musical style and it kind of has this jazzy, cool sexiness to it. So what, what do you think happened in that era that kind of influenced that sound, which you definitely adopted for, for this film, right? Well, I think, you know, the 60s was when you, if you're looking at like film music history, if, I guess that was when it was the first time people started moving away from symphonic scores. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, if you look at someone like John Barry, you know, his first real gig was on Beat Girl, um, which felt, that at, from from what I understand, not being alive in the 60s, but I, you know, from what I've learned, that, that that was a very exciting moment because it was like someone was looking at scoring a film in a different way 
to how everyone else was scoring it at the time. So that quickly became, you know, the new way of doing things. And what's interesting about that is how other composers, you know, jump on that and, and deal with, you know, just these new sounds. And um, I think everyone was excited about new stuff in the 60s. And I think as a result, it kind of, you know, resulted in quite a lot of quite exciting scores. Right. And, right. you know, a really great approach. Also, I think there's lots of other things that have changed, like technology and stuff. I think in, in those days, when you wrote a piece of music, um, you know, you'd have to write very strong, simple music because, um, you know, if you've got like a smaller lineup, you don't have the necessary... Um, the weight of an orchestra or the, the subtlety of an orchestra mm-hmm. uh, so much. So you have to write stuff that's very bold and strong um, that can be played by as few people as possible so it really cuts through. Like if you look at rock bands, rock bands basically be four musicians, but they can be as powerful as a 60-piece orchestra. They can't play 60 different parts at once, but they can play four parts at once and they can give them such a power that it can be equal to an orchestra. Wow, yeah. And... So I think it resulted in stuff sometimes that was sort of simpler um, musically, but, you know, kind of could be just as effective. Right. And I, and that term simple, uh, I, I always use it. I always think simpler is better. A lot of people think of the term simple as, you know, derogative or negative. But I think simple, you at least with a film score, it doesn't get in the way of, I think, what's happening on screen. And I think the music actually becomes even more prominent when it's doing maybe less melodically or something like that. Um, yeah, I think, I think like, simple scores can be... I mean, I, I think there's room for everything. And I think even things we think are... You know, if you look at, like, Morricone stuff and, like, The Good, Bad and the Ugly, you think, hey, that's actually really simple, but it's actually really complicated. <laughs> but um, it feels like there's so much space and you can grab hold of everything and right. it doesn't feel like a mush. And that's what I think is exciting is when... You know, the hardest thing with film music is... Especially today, people want you to hit so many marks in a film. Right. They want so many things to happen at once. And they sometimes lose sight of the bigger picture of, like, you know, what are we actually trying to achieve here? Mm-hmm. And I think digital editing and digital kind of mock-ups and all this kind of stuff makes people constantly want to push and push, it, like on a sort of micro level, um, all these little moments. And you didn't have that in the 60s. In the 60s, you had to say, hey, this is a chase, or this is exciting, or this bit's cool. And you kind of just had to go with that. And you'd have to, you know, you still have to hit things. Right. But it wasn't on the micro level it is today. And that, I think, gave people more freedom. And what has been great about working with Guy is he understands the power of music um, and is a lot more interested in just having a great track. Right. And then my job is to just find my great track and still kind of hit stuff. And he's like, I don't care about hitting stuff, just my great track. But you know everyone does care about hitting stuff. And when it doesn't hit stuff, they're like, why is that not hitting? Mm-hmm. So it was very hard, this score, in a way, because you have to balance both the, the idea of just writing bits of music that were kind of like great grooves and great tracks, but they still have to hit all these points in the film. But in a way that, doesn't feel like you're trying too hard right. if you've got like an orchestral score you can kind of hit you know you can quickly go from like 4-4 four, four to 3-4 and 
it's quite easy to start. It's not easy, but it's relatively easier to push and pull and jump around. But if you've got something that's like, you know, you expect that to go round and round. And, you know, if that's like an eight-bar pattern or something and you suddenly go five, four in the middle, it it could sound, it will sound really stupid. So it's you have to find all these clever little tricks to try and deal with that. Or they just cut it up when they recut the picture and it's painful. Right. And that's what I noticed about the score. It did kind of have this... Uh... Uh, not, I don't want to say like a blanket quality, but like the the tracks themselves do kind of they're in, but they they're in their kind of they have a looping tendency, or they have a rhythm underneath that kind of carries it through. But it's still a narrative progression, and I you feel it moving. And uh, I know every score really has to work with the cutting of the film, but I feel like with with Guy, his music is even more in sync uh, with the editing, and 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 it really kind of you know the music will play on certain cuts and certain looks and glances and. Uh, were you really in tune with the editing on the on this film, or did he did they kind of? Uh... Yeah, I mean, Guy's secret weapon is an editor called James Herbert, who is mm-hmm. brilliant, and he um, is fantastic at working with music, and will come up with all these great ideas. Some of which will drive me insane because we'll have done something that's perfect, and he's like, "Yeah, let's try it like this." And you're like, "What? We just did it. We just done the scene. <laughs> the scene's great." And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, but let's try something else." Um, so we're constantly like throwing, you know, these ideas backwards and forwards. And I was working alongside the film all the way through the process from the beginning of editing, um, which meant you could do that the whole time where you'd be like, hey, what if I did this? And you need to trade things off and you'd be like, look, I'll give you this. If I hit this risk to do this, wow. you, give me, you give me this. And we'd sort of, you know, there's a bit of that sometimes. I'd lose and I'd have to just work or other times it'd be like, ah, oh, you've got to cut to my thing. So we would, there'd be a dialogue all the way through and we'd work with each other. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I'd just have these sequences and I'd have to write to them and make it feel like I had um, written, like it was edited to me. Like it, it, there's a big chase, there's a big sort of battle at the end that's all drums. Mm-hmm. That was all written to picture. But the way I've written it actually feels like it was maybe cut to the music, but it wasn't. Wow. And that's really hard. But, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, there is a lot in this where I've had to kind of write to the picture and make my things work. Yeah. Um, but I kind of got lucky sometimes. I mean, I got really lucky with a few cues because I was like, there's there's this one on the album called Signori Italiano Toiletto, which is a sort of slightly Nina Rotary kind of track and, and it was like, if they chop too much out of that, the whole thing is going to fall apart because it has to go around these little circles. Right. And you put these little things where you just hold in like on one on one chord for a bit and maybe have a little like drum thing just to kind of give you a couple of extra seconds and if they recut it, you could take it out. But I mean, I was that was edge of the seat when that got recut. But it all worked out fine. Hooray. Hooray, yeah. Um, so the thing the... is, no one knows. <laughs> no one knows the hard work that goes on because they see it and they're just like, hey, oh man, he just wrote a bass line and put a drum on top of it. Anyone could do that. <laughs> um, and they're right, they could, but they didn't write 20 different versions of it beforehand and try it 20 different ways before we got to realizing that that was the best one. Right. <laughs> 
But looking looking at Man and Uncle as you know as this it, it is an adaptation from a classic TV series, and in the and that time you had music. I mean, my goodness, uh, Bond came out, of course, James Bond and Mission Impossible, the TV series, and and uh, Man of Uncle. So you have this the show's theme from you know Jerry Goldsmith, but also the episode scores from Ger- uh, Gerald Fried and Morton Stevens, Robert Drasnin, and so many others. Even Lalo Schifrin, you know, jumped in the mix there. So was it your intent yeah. to recapture the original sound of the show, or did you want to do something? completely different or in the same vein but different i mean i want to do something in the vein of of those kind of shows around that time when mm-hmm. you had these lineups which were smaller lineups you know you didn't have i love the you know those sort of lalo scores where it's like you know seven or ten people on the score not right, 30, right. and you've got them featured and you're dealing with like cool performances or like really mad instruments with a great groove behind and it's not getting swamped by you know a big massive orchestra section you know if you if you build stuff around a groove for instance, you know, if you build around a groove you can get a much better um a, a, a different kind of feel you know if you're writing you know it's like when you hear the orchestral scores and they've got a drummer on them and it just sounds like the drum is just plodding along the rhythm. Right, right. And what are really great those ones where you feel like the drums come first and then it's like the strings on at the end, I think. Um, and so that was a bit of a like answer that went nowhere, sorry. Um, but basically, yeah, I was really influenced by those kind of scores, um, not just on Uncle, uh, but like Mission, a lot of English, loads of English TV shows, like, right, uh, right. Uh, like The Persuaders, The Prisoner, um, Danger Man. Um, there's a lot of that kind of genre around that time of like 60s, 70s spy stuff. I really, really love musically, and I've been absorbing it for years anyway. So this was kind of like, hey, great, I get to do all those things I wanted to do for 20 years. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the it just sounds like it was a, a fun. I mean, it sounds like a lot of work, but just listening to the music, but it sounds like it was a lot of fun to write. I mean, to get to use all those instrumentations and to the, yeah, the, the melodies, the grooves. I mean, it sounds like it was a blast. <laughs> the, the writing bit was incredibly hard work. And anyone who saw me that year knows it was very hard work. But the recording <laughs> was the funnest recording sessions I've ever done. We had like because we we decided you know rather than spend all the money on like three days with a 60-piece orchestra, let's spend it on, you know, six people, but let's let's do it over loads more days so yeah, we're not yeah. in this bust and we can actually spend time getting it really right. And so the recording sessions were far more relaxed and um, just had really good fun. You know, just, I mean, also doing stuff that's like about music and performance um, where you're giving, there's a bit of freedom to actually kind of just let the players enjoy themselves. Mm-hmm. It just makes so much difference. Yeah. And also experimenting a bit, saying, hey, this is not the finished thing. You know, we don't need to slavishly recreate what I've written in terms of the demo. Let's make it, let's make it better, but let's see what else we come up with. I mean, we did loads of crazy stuff, like harmonicas through wah-wah pedals that I thought was brilliant and it wasn't, it was rubbish. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, <laughs> We tried it out. We tried lots of other things that worked great. Uh, you know, we had like, um, oh, I think we did two couple of harpsichords going. We did two drummers at the same time, which is which was brilliant. It's like one of those experiments. I didn't know whether it would work, <laughs> um, but for the big 
getting all the drum parts out, everything from like the drum, all the drum fills are pre-written out so they can play exactly the same thing. Um, and then we've got to play at the same time and it just sounds so big because you've got like all the air in the room moving around while they're kicking the crap out of their drum kit. <laughs> I mean, I love I love the, the the whole sound of it. Everything it just came together so well. But also, one thing that stood out to me, and it definitely, you know, stood out in your counselor score too, was there's a I was surprised, and of course pleasantly surprised. There was a little bit of a spirit of Morricone in a few tracks here. Was that the idea? To, uh, there's to... always probably a spirit of Morricone. <laughs> I mean, Morricone is like probably my all-time favorite composer, and so like it's kind of in my blood. Yeah, like can't really escape that. <laughs> Um, Guy is also a massive fan of Morricone um, and you know you're writing things and the things he responds to better sometimes are things that feel a bit Morricone-esque right. um, you know we all know what like the little Morricone things are ding 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 there's always little things and you're like hey that's like Morricone like in the same way with John Williams right. you know, like Williams or um, uh, you know John Barry you know you've, everyone's got their own little yeah, well, a great composer we've got a little thing that you kind of just latch onto, and um, yeah, uh, there's definitely always a bit of Morricone influence if I can get away with it because uh, he's brilliant. Absolutely, and also just the craziness of Morricone, I love. Oh yeah, you know, some of his scores are just off. I mean, just he goes off like crazy. There's uh, I forgot the one, and I think <laughs> when you great films like, like for me, when a new film's coming out, I want to go and see it and think I don't know what a I'm allowed to swear? Yeah, I'm going to swear. I don't know the fuck I'm going to see here, or I'm going to hear. And when when you get that, where you're like, you're going to go and see a film, you don't know what you're going to hear. You don't know what's going to happen with the music. That's really exciting. Because that means it's exciting going to cinema again. It's not like going to cinema and being, oh, we're going to get two hours of strings going, chugga, 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 boom, 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 chugga, chugga. <laughs> so I like... If I can, and it's not always up to me, you know, a lot of that's down to directors as well. But for me, you want to go to cinema and not know what kind of experience you're going to get. Right. If you go to cinema, knowing what you're going to get, it's not as exciting, really. <laughs> All the bits you love in the cinemas, where you come out and go, wow, what was that? Yeah, yeah. Um, and we'll start wrapping up soon. I know you have to go, but I just wanted to ask uh, one more question here. If you're looking back at uh, Guy Ritchie's uh, last two projects, you know, the Sherlock Holmes films, he also had kind of two central characters there that had a sort of push-and-pull relationship. So you hear, again, with A Man From U.N.C.L.E., um, you have these two characters who will kind of, you know, they'll leave you smiling and laughing at their bickering, but you also have a plot that needs to carry, you know, seriousness and significance and have that weight. Does that make nailing down the tone of the film a challenge with the music when you have kind of this uh, two-sided of comic and, you know, action seriousness with it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like, I'm probably better at humor than I am at action, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, but, it's it, it it can make it it can make it tricky because you're always having that thing of like how do you play this scene? Do we play it for action or do we play it for humor? Right. And you know, there were lots of places in the film where we would have that discussion and be like, you know, debating like, right, let's let's play this for action. So you write it for action, and then you're like, yeah, let's try it for something else, and that's too funny. Now let's try this, and so you, you know, it's I think the specializing films that are complicated to score because. They're not, you know, immediately straightforward. You know, if you're doing an action film and there's some action, 
you know what's going to happen? The music's going to be action. Right, right. Um, and, but with a film like this, it's, it could be anything. So it's like, and the more weird it is, the more guy likes it. <laughs> so, um, you know, that always makes it tricky. But, I mean, the Sherlock Holmes scores, the other thing that was amazing about doing this film was Sherlock Holmes scores, I just think, are absolutely brilliant. I mean, I think they're some of the best things to come out of uh, hands. Oh, absolutely. Hands is hands, and hands is team's hands. Um, and, you know, I love those scores. And so, kind of following on from that was uh, a bit of a uh, daunting task, shall we say. <laughs> to follow in those footsteps. <laughs> and uh, uh, right before, or, you know, we're, and ended up here uh, and the whole thing, you know, we've been talking or we've been entrenched in these 60s spy talks since you've checked off Uncle hypothetically, uh, I mean, Uncle from your list, hypothetically, if the opportunity ever fell on your lap and you had to pick one, would you rather score a Mission Impossible film or a James Bond film? Uh, I'm a British citizen, and I would go for Bond. <laughs> I guess that was the expected answer. <laughs> well, uh, Daniel, thank I would, you. I would do my duty to the country to, uh, <laughs> to take Bond over, over Ethan Hunt. <laughs> Well, Daniel, uh, thank you so much for your time. It was such a great uh, uh, honor to speak with you again and, and have fun at the premiere tonight. Thanks. I hope I do. But I've got to get up early to do stuff on Steve Jobs. So it won't be, the, won't be the crazy night I hoped it would have been. Okay, well, thanks so much. Well, um, probably speak to you when Steve Jobs comes out. Absolutely. All right, Daniel, uh, uh, take care. Bye. Thanks bye. so much. Okay, bye.